This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. In a journalistic age when headlines are growing longer and longer for their clickbait value, the Washington Post, in an incredible economy of words, and covering the 75th wedding anniversary of President Jimmy and Rosalind Carter, got it down to one word, inseparable. Now, can you tell the story of that 75-year marriage and that political career without mentioning or acknowledging President Jimmy Carter's religion. Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. Let's talk about the president first. Is Jimmy Carter still a Southern Democrat? It's really an interesting question in the sense that I think he would be a controversial Democrat no matter where you put him in the United States in the current context of the party. He's made some changes in his views through the years, and of course we can expect to read all about that in the coverage, but there are things about him that haven't changed. And I think if the Democratic Party had a lot of 35 to 50-year-old Jimmy Carters, and they were running them for office in the South, I think they would be doing a lot better these days than they are. And I, I could guarantee you he would be immensely popular with black church Democrats, and I think he would be more popular than most of the people they have right now with Latinos especially with his fascination with the Spanish language. I think he is still a Southerner, no matter what has changed about him. And I think that alone would put him in odd territory uh, in the modern Democratic Party. You have looked at three stories about the 75th wedding anniversary of Jimmy and Rosalind Carter. Let's begin with the Washington Post. What stood mm -hmm. out to you in their story? Well, I thought they did a good job of weaving religious content all the way through the life story of these two remarkable people. But it has to be there. You've ignored parts of their life. I mean, at every stage of their story, the church is there. Now, they didn't talk much about whether, you know, the role their faith played in the early days of their marriage, but toward the end, they got into some of the the ties that bind these two people you know and it's very apparent that their faith as lived out in their home was also just as big a part of their story you know as jimmy being the the kind of ironic words of jerry falwell jr two two or three years ago when carter spoke at liberty at commencement, he called him the world's most famous Sunday school teacher. And I think most of us would have to concede him that title. What I've always thought is fascinating about that is we always hear that he's a Sunday school teacher, but when the people go to church and watch him teach 
Sunday school. Nobody ever quotes what he says. I mean, it's like he's still got that Bible in his hand, but we're not all that interested in what he thinks it has to do with the world. It's a part of the Jimmy Carter image that he's a Sunday school teacher. And I've always thought when Southern Democrats have watched their party change through recent years, I've always thought it was very symbolic. If you stood the Carters next to the Clintons, which would most Southern Democrats recognize as kind of the marriage they would like to have? That's a rather crude way of stating the, the issue, but Carter and Bill Clinton are both Southerners, but I think you would have to say that Carter remains closer to his roots in many, many ways in terms of how he's actually lived his life. The Washington Post article right near the end had an image that I just thought was the most amazing anecdote in this story. Let me just read it to our listeners. Later in life, he said, he would occasionally spend a few days overseas without her for the Carter Center, but they didn't let that get in the way of their nightly routine of reading the Bible together before bed, often in Spanish. They would read to each other on the phone, or if the time difference made it too difficult, they would read it alone, each knowing that the other was reading the exact same verse. Jimmy said it was comforting, especially on a night when Rosalind was in the hospital, 10 miles away in Americas. When he got home, he told us, he would read at his bedside while she read the same words just down the road, apart but together. Now, what's hiding in that, besides the fact that this is a nightly ritual, wouldn't you like to know more about what they're reading and why at different times of the year and the fact that are they working their way through the Bible over and over? How do they pick what books they're reading? How did they come up with this decision to do a lot of their Bible reading in Spanish? That little anecdote, doesn't that make you want to know more? Well, yes, and, and really, in a lot of ways, to me it was not only poignant for the marriage angle, which is obviously what they were aiming at, but it, it also you know is forcing me into the question, why do they continue to do this, even in their old age? Why has this, how did this become a, a ritual, even if it's yeah. only for the sake of their marriage? Yeah, and when did it become a ritual? Because if you, if you added one more sentence that simply said, they have been doing this for 75 years, or this grew out of the birth of their first child, or this, you know, I mean, if you just knew a little bit more about this, but this ritual... And don't you know they also pray together before bed? I mean, isn't that kind of implied in this? I've heard Christians who do marriage counseling all the time saying that probably the most intimate thing two people can do in a marriage is pray together or read the Bible together or do some sort of religious patterns together that they share in their life. That's um, a remarkable point of strength for them. My own sister has always said, when, you're, when you choose someone to marry, sometimes we focus on where we are right now. And my wise older sister has always said, the goal is to marry someone who wants to go to the same place as you, 
maybe not someone who's completely in the same place at the moment when you start, which I thought was quite an insight. And what, what you get the impression with the Carters here and why they're still married and why this these rituals and these strengths remain in place is these are two people that traveled this journey together. And I judged these three stories on the degree to which the story told us about how they have made this journey together, as opposed to here's another story about Jimmy Carter as a famous politician, and oh, by the way, we're going to talk about his marriage. What's the priority in the story? I think, frankly, especially this far after his presidency and the fact that you know he was a one-term president and whatever else, I think there are more American readers who would be interested in knowing about what made their marriage work than there are about maybe how Jimmy Carter's politics have changed. And that's how I judged these three stories. What about the New York Times story? Oh, well, it's a New York Times piece. There are fleeting references to things, things like they never go to bed angry. And then, and then later in the piece, there's this brief reference. Let me see if I can find it. Despite pleas from his family and staff to cancel, he nonetheless perched himself before the congregation at Maranatha Baptist Church in Plains for one of the Sunday school classes he taught for years, drawing crowds that traveled from around the world and lined up before sunrise to get inside. But aging was inescapable. He is now handed over Sunday school duties to his niece. This was just a way of saying that even after he survived cancer, he still continued to teach his Sunday school lesson again. Once again, though, the emphasis there is on Jimmy Carter. And that's a proper emphasis. It's an important thing to know about him. But when you look back through the New York Times story, there's not much of an interest in their marriage. And especially, there seems to be no interest in whether their faith and the rituals of their faith and the beliefs of their faith had anything to do with this remarkable marriage. It's, it's a matter of which you put first in the story. I thought the Washington Post piece was far superior. So you said that the New York Times piece was almost devoid of faith. Why is that? Well, this man is a politician. I, I think through the years that you and I have talked to each other, you've heard me repeat this mantra so much, but I think it's, it's something that readers really need to know about the journalism mindset. I've said over and over that politics is the actual religion of most newsrooms, and nothing can compete with politics in the sense that politics is how you actually get things done in the real world. So politics is real, religion is not so real. So if you're going to write a story about this remarkable marriage, and they've been together 75 years, if you're going to say that their faith is the reason this marriage has lasted, and you're going to make that the focus of the story, don't you have to at that point say that there's something real about their faith, and that maybe the content of that faith is worth discussing? And I just don't think for many 
elite newsrooms, and um, New York Times piece to me was a perfect symbol of this. I think it's really hard to admit that faith is real and that it has some real impact in the lives of real people. In this case, especially if the man has been the president of the United States. So, Terry, what did you find or not find in the USA Today coverage of the anniversary? Well, I mean, it's a lot shorter, for one thing, but I guess that shouldn't surprise us, you know, with USA Today's basic format and what they do. I thought it went out of its way to make sure the readers understood that Rosalind Carter was a quite political person who enjoyed political life, who adopted her own causes as First Lady, you know, and that she played a role in his evolving life and career and views on a number of different issues. So in that case, you took her seriously because she had a political side to her as well. There was a moment where, when I was first reading it, when it said they're willing to offer tips on enduring bonds and an enduring marriage. And I'm thinking, okay, now we'll get into it. And one or two of the familiar things, and a brief mention, I mean, half a sentence or so, about them reading the Bible together aloud each night, something they've done for years. Once again, it would be nice to know how long that's gone on. But what I thought was really interesting and kind of an indication of how they were thinking was I was something that came near the end. And I have followed Carter closely because when I was in college, you know, sometime after the cooling of the Earth's crust, I was a very strong Jimmy Carter supporter. When I was at Baylor, I was involved in Carter's campaign on the campus, was a volunteer. I read up a lot on this man and what he has believed through the years and what has changed and what hasn't changed. I know a lot about him. I, mean, I have a relative you know, from a branch of my family who's named after Jimmy Carter. Growing up as a Democrat in Texas, I was used to thinking that Democrats were allowed to be sincere in their religious beliefs and how those religious beliefs affected their faith. I'll share an anecdote here, too. While I was in Denver working for the Rocky Mountain News, Jimmy Carter came to the city. This is after his presidency, obviously. Came to the city and addressed a nationwide conference of Lutheran young people. And I had a chance to interview him and spend, gosh, I mean, it was, wasn't a 10-minute interview or something. I think I spent about an hour with him before he got up to speak. And during the Q&A, he was asked what was his greatest sense of failure or his saddest moment in the presidency, his most difficult moment. And I think everyone in the room was expecting him to say either losing the presidency or saying the, the Iran situation and not being able, the disastrous attempt to get the Americans out of captivity in Iran. And that's not the answer he gave. He's standing there with his shirt sleeves rolled up and talking to a room full of young people. And he said, for him, the most difficult moment in his presidency was when he realized they were not going to be able to achieve any kind of compromise that would limit abortion and would try to move America's abortion policy something closer 
to what most Americans actually believed. He said he didn't think they would have achieved a ban, but he he very much wanted to keep tax money out of abortion. He wanted and he wanted to see if they could get. I think he might have used the term viability. Could they could they get some sort of policy to where abortion was just simply not an on-demand situation, but that he realized that as a Democrat he was not going to be able to pull that off. And of course, his candidacy to run for the presidency the second time was weakened tremendously by Ted Kennedy's attempt to take him on in the primaries and split the party, and a lot of that was over the issue of abortion. So I thought that was an interesting insight into Carter that you know, that soon after his the end of his presidency, the mid-80s, mid to late 80s, he was still thinking about that, and he called that his most difficult moment. And in fact, I was standing right below the podium and watching him. If you watch carefully, he teared up talking about that issue and talking about not being able to do anything because he said, I knew the science on this. I knew the science on this issue, and, you know, I, we needed to find some sort of of way to get that, you know, to have a more just position on abortion. And he, he was clear that he never thought they would be able to pull off a complete ban under Roe, but he still said we just couldn't get anyone to work on this issue. Now, that's really interesting when you look back at the USA Today piece, because there's something interesting missing in this piece. At the very end, the last thing they want to talk about is how his relationship with Rosalind made him an advocate for women and that he listened to her. And then he, he moved on to saying that he left the Southern Baptist Convention in 2006, denouncing their views on women as rigid and subjugated. And, and he kind of joined the cooperative Baptist fellowship side, the more liberal side of the, of the church at that point. I don't think anybody would be surprised by that. He also noted that he had changed his views on same-sex marriage and that he was in favor of legalizing it. And it's interesting, they quote him as saying that he thinks the church should change its views on same-sex marriage. He says that it will continue to be divisive, but the church is evolving. Now, that's where it ends. And you think that that maybe has, is all that he's thinking about women's rights. I think it's fascinating to to look at what he says when he has more of a chance to express his mind, in his address at Liberty, where he was very well received, by the way, he made the following comment. He said, for decades he thought nuclear war was the greatest threat facing humanity. Recently I changed my mind. I think now that it's a human rights problem, that it's discrimination against women and girls in the world. Now let me keep reading and tell me what you hear in this. For example, there are about 150 million girls and women who are not living today because their parents, in order to comply with laws or custom and to have just male sons, either killed their daughters by strangling them at birth or they had the modern-day ability to decide before the baby was born what it was going to be, and if the fetus is female, then they abort the child. To make process on tough issues, said Carter, religious leaders have to be able to find some way to work together as potential allies, and he goes on. Now, that's a really interesting statement, that when he looks at world affairs, one of the primary signs of problems he sees is gender selection abortion, and how, once again, that, that shows that that issue is still in his mind as a way he views the world, 
and how it's a sign of how the human race struggles to deal with women and struggles to deal with what he called a woman's right, in this case a right to be born and and not to be selected in the womb for extinction. It would be very interesting. I'd be stunned if his views on, say, Down syndrome abortion were not similar. But we're not that interested in the nuances of this man's thought. And my point is, it's the nuances, and some would say the confusions, in Jimmy Carter's mind about a lot of these issues, the fact that he's still thinking about them. He's still working through what he believes, and I guarantee you he would say each and every one of those issues is related to his faith. So the point I'm trying to make here is that if you're not willing to admit that this is an odd man in the current context of American political thought and life, and his faith is what still makes him an odd man, then you're really not that interested in Jimmy Carter or in Rosalind Carter either. President Carter is 96 years old. Right. No one lives forever. Do you expect these three outlets to do better in terms of portraying his religious beliefs and practices as a major part of his life when they pen his obituaries? The short answer is no. But let me give a piece of advice. When a president dies, there's a lot of room in the paper to work with. I think it would be very interesting if professional religion reporters in the major newsrooms, and there are some good ones. You don't have to agree with everything they write to know that there are some skilled religion writers in some of these newsrooms. Not at USA Today, but certainly at the Washington Post and the New York Times. I think it would be interesting if the news writers right now, you know there's a huge Jimmy Carter obituary already written, and it's been waiting for several decades, and that they will update it. But I think the religion writers should approach their editors and say, we would like to write a sidebar. That's a journalism term for a story that stands next to the main story. We think this man's faith and the role it played in his life deserves its own story. Will you let us work on that? And will you let us take part in the development of this package? I think in this case, faith is such a part of this man's life, career, his volunteer work, you know, with Habitat for Humanity and everything. You can't look at his life without writing a story about the role his faith played in how he lived his life for better and for worse for a lot of people. But the faith is there in all of those debates. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He is author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, Part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.